All right, gang, if you will pull your Bibles out and turn to Genesis chapter 1, we're starting in the beginning. But I want to tell you guys a story first. There was this man who went up on a mountain. He was having a conversation with God, and he said, God, what's a million years like to you? God said, a minute. Then the man asked God, well, what's a million dollars like to you? And God said, a penny. And the man said, well, God, can I have a penny? <laughs> Y'all laughed more than the first service that did already, and I haven't even got to the punchline. <clears throat> he said, sure, wait a minute. <laughs> I feel better about myself with you guys. <clears throat> While this is a joke, it, it brings up an idea, and that idea is, does God mean what he says? Are we mincing words? Sometimes it's more of a question about what he means than what he says. But either way, we struggle sometimes. And we ask our own questions because of these things. Which leads us to this series. It's the Good Question series. Last week we answered questions one and two. Pastor Mike answered, is the Bible really God's word? The answer is yes. I answered question number two, which version of the Bible is the best? And the answer is, it's the one in your hands. It's the one that you'll use and allow to impact your life. This week, question number three that we're dealing with right now is, is the biblical creation story literal? Can we take the story of God creating all that we know literally? In a few moments, Pastor Mike will deal with question number four, which is, can Genesis be taken seriously? So to start this, the creation story, we have to go to the beginning. And God, we know in the beginning, said things. And this idea of God saying things provides so much motivation to some people that there's a saying that's been developed. It's, you may have seen it. It'll be on the screen behind me. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. I'm going to push back on that just a little bit and, and tell you, you believing it doesn't make it settled. What makes it settled is the fact that God said it. I'll give you an analogy to, to help explain this point. When I first started here at the church, Pastor Mike was working on a construction project. He calls me. He says, hey, buddy, I need some help. Can you come help me? Uh, me and Slade are old, and we need somebody who's younger to climb a ladder. And I said, well, sure, you know, I'll come help you. But I didn't tell him that I'm afraid of heights. So he had me 60 feet up this ladder. <clears throat> it was probably more like 18 feet, but... <laughs> 1860, if you're afraid of heights, what's it matter? Um, I didn't tell him that beforehand, and I'm up on this ladder holding this whatever, I, some piece of construction material, whatever it was. I don't remember. I was like going, uh, but at this point, I'm holding it, and I, and I look down the ladder. And I said, is now a good time to tell you guys I'm afraid of heights? And they decided that me coming down the ladder was probably the next best thing. But knowing that I'm afraid of heights, if I told you guys I've jumped out of airplanes, you believing me doesn't make it fact or fiction. The fact that I am afraid of heights and the fact that I have jumped out of airplanes, your belief in that has no bearing on the truth. The problem with the creation story for us is we're trying to validate 
what God has said and done in our minds. Our belief of that can't be the thing that truth hinges upon. We're trying to fit the abilities of God inside of our human brains. Now, I'm not talking about your brains, but definitely mine. If you knew the things that rattle around in this brain, I mean, look, guys, I can walk around with my keys in my hands having lost them. Or with my glasses like this going, where are they? Or my phone right here, where is it? I even walk into the kitchen sometimes and forget why I'm there. I can't be alone in this. And with a brain like that, why am I trying to justify my thought patterns being the ones that validate what God has and has not done? So let's look at it. It's a story I'm sure we're all familiar with. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 is where I'm going to start. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. Now, first of all, the power God must possess. For for those of you who are dads in, in the crowd today, who've ever walked around your house flipping light switches off, how much power would there be? Now, I'm talking pre-Alexa, pre-OK-Google okay and all that kind of stuff. But how much power would there be in your voice to just be able to say, lights off, and they just go off? But even if I could say lights off, Alexa's still listening, but she always is, <laughs> or the electricity's still running, Light wasn't a thing. God thought it, said it, spoke it, and it happened. What kind of power that must be? Now, we need to phrase the rest of the creation story with that kind of power in mind. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called Night. Let's talk about day for just a minute. This is the first use of the Hebrew word yom. That word is the source of conflict in this story because throughout scripture it means different things in different places. But if we look at, at a, a biblical dictionary more to kind of examine, do a word study on this word, it typically means one of two things. The hotter part of the day, where the sun's up, from sunrise to sunset. That's meaning number one. Meaning number two is a 24-hour period, a day, the time that it takes the clock to go around twice. If you use regular time, one time if you use military time. That is a day. But the word is used figuratively several places in Scripture. For instance, these were the days of the judges. That same word is used there. But we're talking a period of time. And then there's the days of someone's life. Again, we're talking a period of time that the word day is used to express where um, it's being used as a measurement. But in every one of those figurative situations where it is used as a measurement, 
it is accompanied by some word or words that give it context. These were the days of the judges. That's the time when Israelite had no king. The judges were the ruling people in Israel. So we know what time frame we're talking about. These are the days of someone's life from birth to death. That's, there's something that defines that. And then God created, he, he called the darkness night. I don't need to go into as much detail as what night is because it's the opposite of day. It's just the not warm part of the day. We keep reading and get to this. God, God called the light day, called the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is the creation pattern. God creates, there's morning, there's evening the first day, the second day. God creates Light the first day, sky the second day, the land, the seas, and plants the third day, the, the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, excuse me, on the fourth day, birds and, and fish on the fifth, land animals and humans on the sixth. We know on the seventh that he rested. That's the pattern that God used. So we know if this is either literal or figurative. If we were to assume that it's figurative, we have to figure out what words go along with it that give it some sort of context. Well, there was day and there was night. There's some context. There was morning and there was evening. That's the rest of the context. So it can only be from sunup to sundown, the trip around the clock. It has to mean one day. It can't mean anything else. Here's an interesting kind of a statistic for you guys. This also kind of bumps up the idea of what, what the word means. That day, yom, is used 2,287 times in Scripture. Of those times, 2,008 of the times, it means exactly what we know it to mean. With that being such a high occurrence, there's, there's some weight towards, that's what it means when it's used. So that bears a question for us. If day means 24 hours, how could all that we know about earth have happened in six days? Scientists tell us there's a fossil record that tells us the earth is millions of years old. There's, there's some sort of problem when, when we look at that and we try to reconcile that there's, you know, with fossils and carbon dating and all of those things. When we try to reconcile that with scripture, that if, if God did all of these things in six days, how are those other things there? That's why the next three things are important. I'm going to give you guys three factors to consider that will help explain this. The first one is apparent age. This is the idea that the earth has age that is a part of its design. For instance, Adam. When God created Adam, 
Adam was not an infant. He wasn't a toddler. He wasn't a child, a tween, a teen. He was a man. When Adam was two minutes old, he appeared to be mature. There's no appearance. He was mature. He is, was mature. When God created earth, it could very well be that he created it mature. He created it with, we know there were trees that produced vegetation just a few days later. He could have created earth with marks that make it appear a certain age. The second thing I want to talk to you guys about is called cataclysm, cataclysmic events. These are natural disasters. So in 1980, St. Helens, the mountain erupted, and in that eruption, there were trees that were thrown off the mountain into a lake. I'm pretty sure it's Lake Serenity. Um, And as those trees sat in the water, the root systems, roots absorb water, the roots took on water from the lake, and the trees started to sink, and because the root systems were heavier, they were waterlogged, the, the root systems sank first, and they went straight down into the mud. And if you and I were to go scuba diving, I'm also afraid of that, so probably not, but if you and I were to go scuba diving today, it would look like there's a fossilized forest at the bottom of Lake Serenity, These trees had age. They matured on the side of this mountain. There wasn't an underwater environment. And then you throw them in water, and it swells them, and it makes things of their apparent age look different. Now, I would tell you, the the interesting thing part of that, the interesting part of that is that the kids that I deal with on, on Wednesday nights would tell you that happened in the late 1900s. And, um, like, ouch. Uh, that we know that happened right at 40 years ago. But those trees look thousands of years old because of what happened to them. At the same time, that same, uh, that same uh, natural disaster, there was a volcanic flow. That volcanic flow carved a canyon into earth, and there's a river now at the bottom of that canyon. If it hadn't have happened in recent history, the late 1900s, it would appear that a river... A stream started trickling and and eroding away the ground. That stream gained a little steam. Some more quantity of water came through it. And now a river has eroded the earth and sits in a canyon that takes millions. I don't know what the number is. I don't know what scientists would tell us. Millions of years to create that scenario. But it happened in some of our lifetimes. We saw what happened. We know what happened. But science would tell us that's something way different than what happened. Man, would it be interesting if there was a recorded historical event of something that was lots of water pressure and lots of water flowing and volcanic 
situations that may have changed the way earth looks. Let me tell you a story about a guy named Noah. I'm actually not going to tell you. Pastor Michael will tell you more about him. But in Genesis chapter 7, it says, as the, the flood waters came, the earth's crust at the ocean floor opened up. We've In recent history, we've also seen volcanic activity under, under the ocean. It causes tsunamis, and they go make big waves. But what happens there is there's volcanic activity at the, at the floor of the ocean. Man, what would ha- I wonder what... Okay, look. We're about 120 feet above mean sea level here, I think, roughly. What kind of pressure? If you've ever jumped in a pool and swam down to the bottom about eight feet and felt the pressure it puts on your ears, I wonder what kind of pressure water in Statesboro, Georgia, would cause if that water were so deep that it covered Mount Everest. How would that change? Would it just make the area muddy? It did do that. But what kind of geological changes would there be and advances in geological changes would there be that would change the way the world looks? Scientists right now are studying a thing called marine reservoir effect where ocean activity and river activity are causing changes at different rates based on the speeds of water flow, water temperature, the curves that the the river's following, where it will change the way rocks look in one area versus another just a few hundred feet away. And it will make the apparent ages of those two things change at drastically different rates. And God's Word literally tells us of an event that could have shaped the entire earth's footprint and x-ray differently. The last one is don't assume uniformitarianism is fact. We think a lot of times that earth changes in a uniform manner. That's what that word means. I'm not going to pronounce it again. I got it mostly right that time, so I'm not going to try it again. But we think sometimes that the earth changes the same way constantly. But we know that scientists have proven recently that that's not what happens. The changes in earth's temperature, atmosphere, and climate have caused there to be differing rates of change. And if we assume what we experience now is what happened A few thousand years ago, we could be vastly wrong. There's a biblical record of people who lived 900 years. Here's the bottom line. Here's what I want you guys to remember out of this. These three things, among others, combine to let us know that it's completely possible for the story as God has told it to us to be 100% accurate. And because of that, we can trust him to question the God who says, let there be light, and it happens instantaneously. Not taking light years to get here, but in that moment, the God who's infinitely capable, and for us to question him, With our minds, minds that lose our glasses on the tops of our heads, is frankly nonsensical. 
I want you guys to remember this. There's enough evidence for us to trust God and to realize that what we can't understand was caused by a very, very powerful creator. So the answer is yes. You can trust the creation story. You can take it literally. And the same God who did all of that wants a relationship with you. I used to uh, think we evolved from apes. Um, Darwin's theory of evolution through natural selection seemed pretty watertight. But in, in doing research for this show, um, I, I came across a theory um, that deviates from Darwin's. And, and I believe that. It's, I just found it in a dusty old book in a, in a library. It's called The Bible. <laughs> and uh, Darwin was wrong. Um, we didn't evolve. God made us. Um, so I just want to explain to you exactly how that happened. Okay. The first book of Moses, commonly called Genesis. Start at the beginning. Um, fairly big book, but... <laughs> Friday, innit? Lock the doors. <laughs> okay. Took me four years to get this platform. Now they listen. <laughs> just think if I'd have blown it, just going door to door. Right, okay. <laughs> um, some of the things you, you, you're here um, do sound a little bit far-fetched. I admit that. I thought it was a bit. But um, then I found out that the other name for the Bible is the Gospel. So it is all true. <laughs> so... <laughs> Luckily, clue is in the title. Okay. <laughs> come on, come on. The Bible. Okay. Chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It doesn't go into detail. Um, <laughs> he doesn't need to explain to you. You probably understand it, because he's got a massive brain. Yours is little, and, he, and you go, what? He goes, don't, what? just trust me. I, I, I did. Um, and also... If he explained it to you, it would like, ruin the enigma. Do you know what I mean? You'd go, that's amazing. He just said, it's a trick. And you go, oh. So it's like seeing... <laughs> no, it's like David Blaine did something. And you go, oh, that is real magic. And you go, no, I'm just standing on one leg and lifting the other up. <laughs> Easy. So... Keeps his cards very close to his chest, God. Good luck. Good luck to him. He can do what he wants. He can do anything, so he can do what he wants. OK, here we go. In the beginning, God created the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Bit dark, he sorted that out. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Huh, isn't that brilliant? <laughs> hey? Oh, come on, that's amazing. He just made, he made light up. Just, it was dark, it was nothing before. It's not like he saw someone on holiday and went, that'd be good back on earth. He made it up. Do you not, you're, it, he invented, there was no... There was nothing to go by. It wasn't like there was twilight, and he went, let's have that a little bit brighter. He, <laughs> he just went, let there be light. And, there were, and at the speed of light, he didn't go, let there be light. Come on, I'm busy. It's the first day. I've got a lot to do. I've only got seven days. It just, do you know what I mean? He, and he probably didn't have to say it. He did say it, but he could have gone, mm, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Brilliant. Do you know what I mean? He, Come on, he's amazing. 
I too am going to be in examining Genesis chapter 1. If you want to leave your Bible right where it is, uh, Tyler did a great job answering the first question. I believe uh, everything he said, I'm in total agreement with everything he said, with one small exception. I do not believe that Tyler Woodson has ever walked in the kitchen and forgotten why he was there. <laughs> That's for all the old comments, Tyler. <clears throat> You may not know this, but both creation scientists and evolutionists tend to agree for the most part as to where civilization began, where life originated on planet Earth. Geographically, evolutionists and creation scientists believe that it happened in Iraq, where the Tigris and the Euphrates combined to form a massive river that then spills into the Persian Gulf. This is what evolutionists call the cradle of civilization. And it's what Genesis calls the Garden of Eden. I'm here to answer question number four. You've read the book of Genesis most likely. Even if you haven't, you know most of the stories contained therein. Can we really take it seriously? Can we take Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 9, seriously? Genesis has 50 chapters. The word Genesis by itself literally means origin. And the 50 chapters of Genesis trace the account of man from creation to the lives of Abraham and his great-grandson, Joseph. Now, keep in mind, the book of Genesis does not date the planet. The Word of God does not tell us how old the earth really is. Now, some creation scientists tend to use the genealogies in the book of Genesis. You know that part, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. They do the math, and they come up with a very early or young age for planet Earth. Now, not because of that reasoning, but I am a young earther. I happen to believe, based upon plenty of evidence that the earth is no more than ten to 12,000 years old. There are those, however, who believe it is millions and millions and millions of years old. I'm here to tell you, I'll be the first to admit, I don't think the age of the earth matters one bit. There's nothing in the book of Genesis that the scientific community cannot support. Let me say that again. There is nothing in the book of Genesis that the scientific community cannot support. It's very unfortunate to me that the rigid scrutiny that is clamped down on Christianity is not applied to other differing theories, because that's what they are. They're theories. But in our world, it's only Christianity and the Genesis account of creation that is held to intense scrutiny and investigation, especially with the wave of intelligent design believers among the scientific community during the past four decades. More and more scientists are coming to the conclusion that mankind is not the random accident of an explosion in the universe. Mankind was the intended consequence of a divine and intelligent design. They may not believe the Word of God, the Genesis account of creation, the Hebrew and Judeo-Christian God. They may not believe that, but they do believe that there was a designer in the universe. Today, I'm going to try and answer three questions for the price of one. You're getting a real bargain today at church. When Tyler and I do these together, we shoot text messages back and forth over whose message is going to be better. I win this week hands down because I'm going to answer three for the price of one. These are the most commonly asked questions 
concerning the first nine chapters of Genesis. Skeptics love to point to the first nine chapters of Genesis, roll their eyes, and dismiss your faith in Jesus Christ because of what's contained therein. I told you last week that one of the reasons people choose not to trust divine inspiration, they choose not to believe the Bible is inspired of God, is because if the Bible is inspired of God, that means it comes with built-in authority and I am accountable to it. And most of us do not wish to be accountable to anyone. If you read the first nine chapters, you are bound to have some questions. Very quickly, I'm going to try and answer three of the most common. Here's question number one. How could God create light on the first day but wait until the fourth day to create the sun? I mean, how is that possible? If you read straight through the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, it appears that God created light on the first day and then created the sun on the fourth day. It doesn't make sense to us because if he created light, the only light in our universe are the sun and the stars. So if he created the sun and the stars on the first day, did he recreate them and do it again on the fourth day? The answer to this question is relatively simple, simpler than you might realize. In fact, I'll put it on the screen and then I'll explain it. Here's the answer. God created the luminaries, the sun, the stars on the first day, but then he declared their purpose on the fourth day. God created the idea, the concept, the reality of the sun, moon, and the stars on the first day, but he put them to work. He gave them function and form on the fourth day. Look at verse three. I'll read the same passage Tyler just read, Genesis chapter one. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That means that prior to the first day of creation, light as we know it and interpret it did not exist. On the first day of creation, he created light. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now watch. And there was light, verse 4. God saw that the light was good and that he separated the light from the darkness. So watch. In a very general fashion, magnificent as it is, imagining and speaking light into existence, as Tyler demonstrated, is incredible. It's beyond our comprehension. However, this was a very general act of the creative process. He separated light from darkness. Imagine the sun, the moon, the stars, they're all over here on this side, and darkness is on this side. He hasn't put them to work. He hasn't organized it as of yet. Keep reading. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. What you have in Genesis 1, 3 through 5 is the creation of the luminaries. They exist, but they haven't been put to work. We have to skip to day 4, beginning in verse 14, to see that happen. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky. Your translation may read the expanse of the heavens. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. What's happening here? God is taking something he's already created on an earlier day, and he's putting it to work. He's giving it form. He's giving it function. The earth, as it rotates on its axis, will produce night and day. The earth, as it revolves around the sun, will mark our seasons, will create our year. Keep going, verse 15. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The simple answer to that question is God created 
the luminaries on day one, he put them to work on day four. That pattern repeats itself in creation days five and six. On the fifth day of creation, God filled the sky he had already created on an earlier day with birds. He filled the water he had already created on an earlier day with fish. On day six, God created man and animals to inhabit the earth he had already created on an earlier day. See, the pattern is just repeating itself. We don't, get, we don't know the purpose of the earth or the purpose of the water until we get to days five and six. That's how you answer question number one. Here's question number two, and this makes everybody go, ew. Question number two, who would murder Cain and where would he find a wife? Who would murder Cain and where would he find a wife? This story comes from Genesis chapter four. We're not going to take time to read it because you probably know it as well as I do. Cain had a younger brother named Abel. Cain rose up and murdered his brother Abel. When he did that, God banished him and said, you're condemned to wander the earth for the remainder of your days. And in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 14, Cain objects. He says, someone's going to find me and they're going to murder me seeking vengeance for the brother that I killed. Well, where's that guy going to come from? In Genesis chapter 4, it tells us that Cain left and headed eastward. He settled in the land of Nod and there he took a wife and had many children. Well, where did he find this woman? Who would murder Cain and where would he find a wife? If Cain and Abel were the only children of Adam and Eve, where are these other people coming from? How does he find a wife? Who's he afraid is going to murder him? Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25 tells us they weren't the only children of Adam and Eve. Genesis 4.25 tells us they had at least one other son, Seth. So now you've got Seth and Cain. Here's the answer to the question. Again, I'll give it to you, and then I'll explain it. Adam and Eve had other children, many, many other children not mentioned in the Genesis account. Cain and Abel and Seth weren't the only three children of Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that Adam lived to be 930 years old, 930 years old. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply for 900 years. <laughs> Stop and think for a moment. Imagine how many children a healthy adult couple with an almost pure gene pool could have over a 900-year lifespan. I mean, what else did they have to do? There was no television. Adam was the man. The fact is, they probably had an enormous family tree. Again, go back to those genealogies. A father gives, begets a son. Then he becomes a father, begets another son. Then he becomes a father, begets another son. The Bible doesn't list the entire family tree, all the siblings, all the brothers and sisters. The Bible simply follows one father-to-son combination from start to finish. It is very likely that Cain feared a grand-nephew of Seth would one day recognize him and avenge his uncle Abel's murder by killing Cain. It is most likely, remember, we're talking about 900 years, Adam and Eve did not have parents 
So they had a virtually pure gene pool. It is very likely that within 900 years, someone like Cain could find a woman he had never seen before, a grandniece, a granddaughter for that matter, and eventually marry her. Now, we hear something like that, and oh, our skin crawls. Guy's marrying his grandniece. Good grief. Let me remind you of something. That had to happen either way, either with evolution or with creationism. Somebody's got to sleep with her sister. That's just had to happen if you're the only people, okay? That's how Cain feared he would be murdered one day and found a wife eventually. Here's the question I've been dying to get to because to me this is the biggie. Question number three. Come on, put it on the screen. There we go. How could Noah fit all the animals in the ark? How in the world is that going to happen? I mean, skeptics love to point to the account of Noah and the flood, roll their eyes, and say there's no possible way you could put all the animals on the earth in one tiny boat. How could so many creatures exist together in a small ship? How are you going to care for them? How are you going to feed them? What are you going to do with all the poo? How could it be done? First thing I want you to remember is that everywhere else in the Bible, including the words of Jesus himself, consider the account of Noah and the flood to be true. Everywhere else. The next thing I want to show you in literally five minutes is how reasonable it truly is. First of all, let's examine the kinds of animals that Noah took aboard the ark. The Bible says there were three kinds of animals. That's a very important word. Three kinds of animals. It lists them for us. Birds, land vertebrates, and creeping things, or reptiles most likely. You see, Noah didn't have to load every kind of species on the ark. Thousands of species of birds and thousands of species of, of mammals didn't have to do that. He only had to load the kinds Kinds or genus, the top of the pyramid. Through natural selection and microevolution, all of the species would come later. Scientists have estimated that in order to populate the earth as we know it today, with all of the various species of animals, all Noah had to do was get 16,000 animals aboard that ship. 16,000. Still seems like a big number, but I'm going to show you how possible it truly is in a moment. Next, consider the size of the animals. Most people mistakenly assume that when Noah loaded the ark, he loaded a pair of adult species or adult animals capable of reproducing. Not so. That's not what he did. Most likely, Noah loaded baby animals. Baby animals on board the ark. They didn't have to reproduce. There would be plenty of time for that later. Most likely, every one of those animals was small, a child, a juvenile, if you will. Interestingly enough, of the 16,000, scientists have also estimated that only 10% were larger than a sheep. That means that 90% of the 16,000 animals necessary to be loaded on in pairs to the ark were sheep size or smaller. Okay, follow me. Now let's talk about the size of this boat. According to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 15, the ark's dimensions are as follows. 
It was 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. Now think about this for a moment. If you do the math, that comes to 1.5 plus million cubic feet of volume inside the ark. 1.5 plus million cubic feet of volume inside the ark. A massive ship. When you get stuck behind a tractor trailer on the interstate, pulling its load to the port in Savannah, that semi-trailer is comprised of about 5,500 cubic feet of space. The ark, based upon that mathematical equation, could have held 275 semi-tractor trailers worth of cargo. Now stop and think about this. If you've ever seen, especially out west, a double-decker cattle trailer, you ever seen livestock going down the road and the cows are actually double-decker in a semi-trailer or chickens are stacked 15 crates high going down the interstate? In the Midwest, when they haul sheep, they are by law required to haul no more than 302 sheep on a triple-decker semi-trailer. So stop and think about it. Do the math. If... 302 sheep will fit on one semi-tractor trailer, trailer, and the ark will hold 275 semi-tractor trailer trailers. That means the ark is capable of carrying 83,000 sheep size or less animals. It is very, very possible that it happened exactly the way your Bible says. Look, in recent days, they've uncovered an ancient archaeological dig in modern-day Iraq. They've stumbled across documents, legal documents, 4,000 of them in total, that date back 5,000 years or so. They actually date back to the time of Abraham, another character in your Bible. And as they've perused these documents, they've answered many of the questions we have about Abraham's life as recorded for us in the book of Genesis. You know, Abraham did some strange things. Remember, Abraham was going to travel with his wife, Sarah, to Egypt. And in order to keep Pharaoh's paws off his wife, he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. And we've scratched our heads and said, why did he lie? Why did, this is God's friend. This is a righteous man, the friend of God, a man of faith. Why would he lie? Why didn't he leave that in God's hands? According to these ancient documents that contain Harian law, H-A-R-R-I-A-N, Harian law. Abraham would have lived under Harian law. It was perfectly acceptable. It was a commonplace practice for a man to refer to his wife as a sister under certain circumstances because in that culture, under that legal arrangement, sisters were more valuable than wives. A man might have 10 wives, but he only has one likely sister. So when Abraham did what he did, he was acting in, in kind with his legal custom. There's another story about Abraham and Sarah. God promises they're going to have a baby, but they're both old and Sarah can't have any children. And so Abraham takes Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. They, they have sex and she gives him a son. They call him Ishmael. And we scratch our heads and we say, wait a minute, Abraham, you're the man of faith. You're the father of a nation. Why didn't you trust God? Because under Harim law, Harian law states that's a perfectly common practice. 
Abraham was not acting out of bounds in his culture to do such a thing. Look, I bring all of this to your attention. Because while we continue to dig up ancient artifacts all around the globe, all we keep doing is strengthening the evidence that already exists in the book of Genesis. Civilizations, people groups, rivers, towns, cities, rulers, it's all there. It just takes us thousands of years to find something that proves it. Look, the people who point to the book of Genesis and try and tell you that's just make-believe, that's some kind of fantastic story, they're the same people who try and convince you that all religions are basically the same. Any cursory examination of the evidence and the particulars of each reveal the exact opposite. So the answers to today's questions, yes, you can trust the creation account is literal, and most certainly you can take the book of Genesis seriously. We'll answer two more questions next week, God willing. Father, thank you for the time to be together. And thank you for a word, your, your word, your revelation that is clear. Thank you that it is timeless. Thank you with all of the scrutiny placed upon it worldwide throughout the centuries. It continues to stand. We praise you for it. Go with us now to our homes. Bless us, watch over us, and keep us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church.